Hello and welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast. So happy to have you with me. I am your host, Justin Douglas. If you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, and questions, or you can reach out via Instagram. I'm at Pastor Justin Douglas. Today is episode 10. We are in the double digits, y'all. Yes, the double digits. And it is the first time we've had a repeat guest. If you remember episode 001 on evolution, Nate McConkie shared his scientific knowledge with us. Uh, Today we talk about genetics with Nate. Uh, It's a fascinating conversation in which I do my best to keep up because I'm not even close to high school level scientist. Um, Also, for those of you who are CrossFitters listening, uh, there's a point in the podcast where Nate references rhabdomyolysis, and I was like, well, I know what that is, and uh, (laughs) this is my podcast, so we're going to go ahead and go down that rabbit trail real quick. And we did, and I think you might enjoy it, or even I think everyone might enjoy it, not just the CrossFitters. But I think you're really going to enjoy the episode as a whole. Uh, I know I did, and I am still trying to understand and process much of it. So here it is, uh, our conversation, Nate McConkie and I's conversation on genetics. All right, Nate. All right. How are you doing? I'm doing well, you? <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you. This is the uh, second time you've been on the podcast, and we're going to talk about science some more because you are a scientist pretty much, a doctor, but like know everything about science. Whenever we talk science, you astound me at least. I don't, I don't know anything <laughs> about science, so it's... Uh, it's great to, to have you back, and uh, do you just want to like refill people in on who you are, what you do, what you're about? Sure. Um, so I originally, my first degree was in cell and molecular biology. Um, I got my bachelor's in cytomolecular biology when I was 19. Um, I didn't have much of a life. I just kind of ran through it. Um, <laughs> then I went on for a master's degree in public health, and eventually I got my medical doctorate. Um, I'm board certified in multiple specialties, including internal medicine and pediatrics. So between that's basically everything. Um, yeah. And I'm currently working on adding cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology to my repertoire as well. Mm. Uh, so I've been studying biomedical science since my mid-teen years for the most part, I would say. Um, I've worked both in basic science research with things like uh, basic molecular and genetic studies. I've also worked on clinical research, diagnostics, imaging, things related more to clinical medicine as well. But I, I try and keep everything sharp and dabble in everything, at least to some degree still, and stay abreast of everything that comes through the pipeline. So wow. it's, a, it's a fascinating field. I never get tired of it, and it's one of my favorite things to talk about, so I'm happy to be here again. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you're kind of like a Doogie Howser. I, re- I, re- <laughs> I think I said that last time, which yeah. is like graduating early and, uh, and just all the different fields that you're working in, which is great because what I want to talk about today is genetics, hmm. and we could really go anywhere with that. Like, I'm really open to going anywhere in genetics that you find interesting or that... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe interesting, but one of the things that I'm very interested in is your thoughts on things like CRISPR or I don't know if you want to call it genetic hacking. I don't know what that's really, I don't know. I mean, obviously that's maybe like, you know, um, common language, but the idea that, um, we, we may be really close to a time when I can program a particular, 
set of traits for my child. Like, mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe you disagree with that statement or maybe you agree with that statement, but it seems to me that as I've heard people talk about this, it seems like we're really close to the idea of being like, oh, I want my kid to have blue eyes. I want to have a boy. I want to, yeah. I want him to look like Clay Matthews. I don't know, Clay yeah. Matthews, if you get that reference <laughs> as a football player for the Packers. But like, I mean, it, it could be like, um, that could be pretty far off, but at the same time, some people are theorizing that, that we're not far from that. What are, what are your thoughts on that in general as we open the conversation? Sure. So, I mean, certainly we're not there quite yet. There's still many, many more mysteries left to be solved, but that does seem to be the end goal is to possess that sort of ability, and we're rapidly acquiring the knowledge and the tools to do so. Um, so among things like the Human Genome Project, having sequenced the entirety of the genetic code, at least the parts that seem to be doing something useful, um, and then some basic mechanisms for adding genetic material to cells like um, you know, viral transduction or different techniques for introducing genes. And then we get up to the ability to even snip out, edit, and remove or replace genes, and that's where things like CRISPR comes into place. And so, you know, we seem to be rapidly approaching that point where we might be able to reprogram living human cells and possibly even germlines, which would mean something that could be used to, you know, influence human genetics that are passed down to your offspring. Um, We've always been able to do this to some degree, at least on a cellular level. Um, Even when I was an undergrad student in college, we could take you know, something like human cells, and we could make them produce a protein that makes them glow in the dark or something like that. Mm. Um, And that's, that's, you know, practically high school level science nowadays. Wow. Um, Additionally, very frequently in the lab, we'll engineer uh, bacteria in particular to produce a protein of interest, like um, insulin, for example, can Mm. be made in bacterial cells. Mm. And we basically give them the genes to make a protein that normally is made by the pancreas. And then that's actually a common mechanism for mass producing certain biological compounds that are used for pharmaceutical purposes. So hmm. there's, there's nothing terribly new about this idea. It's just that often the techniques were somewhat dirty and ineffective. Um, maybe when I use um, a chemical like transfectol, which was an old way for introducing cellulars, uh, or rather genetic material into cells, maybe 10 to 30% of the cells would actually take it up. Hmm. And if you're going to do something so precisely that you want one specific cell, like a fertilized egg that will eventually become yeah. your child, if you really want to make sure that we can get the exact genetic material in that cell and in the right amount, that's another issue, um, that requires a little bit more precision and it may be a little bit more risky. So um, when we think of DNA, we're thinking almost like a computer program in a sense. We're providing a series of instructions that basically teach the cell how to make a protein. Uh, The only thing the genetic material can do is essentially influence proteins. And proteins include enzymes and includes channels in the cell that allow chemicals to enter and exit it. So, I mean, we think of protein as like this, you know, one-dimensional faceless chemical that you have in, you know, food and beverages. But it's there are probably more types of proteins than we've been able to count. And the human body itself can produce hundreds of thousands of different ones. And with that, each and every one carries a specific purpose. So it's not unreasonable to say everything the body can do, it can do because of a protein of some kind. So being able to influence genes and direct the production of those proteins lets you control pretty much anything in the cell. Um, Including eye color. Yes, absolutely. Including hair color. Exactly. Including uh, gender. Uh, All of the above, yes. Wow. Um, But that being said, I I say that I kind of limit what genetics can do by describing it as a means of influencing proteins to differentiate it from sometimes in the popular media like X-Men, you know, a mutation lets them shoot lasers from their eyes and walk (laughs) your walls. Like, you know, that's, you know, DNA is amazing, but it's not magical. There's certain things it can and cannot do. Well, and DNA can adapt to, or not adapt, well, adapt might be the proper word, but I guess 
it, it, it can have limiting factors based on environment too, right? Because you could have a DNA code to be a tall individual. Like mm-hmm. you could have that in your genetics, but if you're not if you're malnourished as a child, exactly, then, then then you might not be as tall as you had the potential to within your genetic code, correct? That's true. So your genes can only give you the tools to do, you know, certain things that maybe require resources or building blocks that may or may not be available. And that's a perfect example. But it actually goes a little bit deeper than that. We think of genes as being something where, you know, once you put it into a cell, something magic happens and it just goes. But the cell actually has ways of turning genes on and off or changing the amount at which they're active as well. And um, one of the classic models that we worked with in undergrad was uh, something like the LAC operon. So that's a collection of regulatory materials that are found in E. coli. And what it does is it allows them to turn on a gene that lets the bacteria produce a certain enzyme, but only when the food that that enzyme digests is present. Mm. So if we give them, you know, lactose in this example, for example, uh, we can have them basically wake up an enzyme that helps them break down lactose. And so because of that, they're not wasting their time using all these necessary building blocks like amino acids to make enzymes that they don't need. Um, But that's just one of many, many examples. Pretty much every protein that your body produces is only useful in certain situations. And certain signals that the cell receives can cause the genes that produce those proteins to either turn on or off. Hmm. And um, we can also manipulate that. We can program a cell so that it only expresses this particular genetic function in the presence of a signaling molecule. So I could say, okay, I want to genetically engineer a rat that can survive extreme temperatures. Well, I'm only going to have it produce this heat protective protein in the presence of a certain food. And then if I give them that food while they're here in the lab, they can do it. But if they escape and run in the wild, then they won't turn to super rats that can survive in volcanoes or something. Mm. Just as as an extreme ridiculous example. Sure. but uh, that's frequently done with insects, for example, when we're doing something like RIDL technique. Um, so what that refers to is actually genetically engineering insects to die after a certain period of time. Okay. Which sounds kind of like an arbitrary and weird thing to do. But yeah. what they do is they generate a number of these insects that are engineered in this way, and they release them into the wild in an area where they want to reduce the population of that insect which so far doesn't make a lot of sense because if I wanted less of that bug, why did I just release more of them? Well, what happens is these bugs mate with the normal bugs and all of their offspring now have this gene that will kill them after a certain period of time. So while they're in the lab and while we're growing up this population of, you know, genetic weapons, essentially, we may expose them to a chemical that turns off the deadly gene. But when they're released into the wild after a certain period of time, it kicks in, hopefully after they've passed on their genetic material to their offspring. And any bug that mates with one of these genetically engineered insects basically wasted its time. So if it mated with a wild type insect, then you'd have offspring and you'd have the, you know, the lineage continue. But in this way, we can reduce or even cause the extinction of certain insects. And when you think about things like malaria, that could be very... Exactly. That could be very uh, influential Mm -hmm. in disease control. And we've used similar techniques, whether it's releasing insects with, you know, lethal genes or releasing sterile insects. Um, Oftentimes they're insects that can only mate once and then they begin preparing to lay their eggs. So if you release sterile insects and the wild bugs mate with this one, then they wasted their one shot, essentially. Mm. And using that technique, we've been able to eliminate things like the screwworm fly from North America. So the screwworm fly is a nasty little bug 
whose larva can actually essentially drill into living tissue, um, especially it's fond of cattle and livestock. And so it would be a major issue because they oh, can transmit wow. diseases. They cause physical suffering for the animals. No one really cares for these things. And yeah. they don't seem to play a significant role in the food chain. Huh. So it, it was a good target for us to use similar techniques to basically reduce their population almost to the point of extinction. And by doing so, we've effectively eliminated them from large areas of the country. Um, the gypsy moth is another example of a pest that has tremendous impact on consuming plant matter. And you know, it was mm-hmm. another one of those things where it doesn't seem to have a significant role in the food chain that it couldn't be replaced. So yeah. when we identify things like that, you know, these techniques aren't just theoretical. They have actually been used to reduce or even eliminate populations of these organisms. That's so fascinating. Not to go down the animal kingdom uh, wormhole that this could possibly be, but I have heard a lot about like Florida's problem with like pythons and like stuff like that because uh, a lot of non-indigenous snakes, I guess, have been released by owners or whatever Mm -hmm. who had them as pets, I guess. And those non-indigenous snakes then um, mate and are, are, I guess, ruining the ecosystem in a lot of ways. So that's pretty much uh, a way of like, a potential way of going in and saying, okay, how do we undo this thing that's either limiting the proper ecosystem or the ecosystem that we desire? That And that requires quite a bit of precision, would you say? I would say so. Um, but the fascinating thing about genetics, as opposed to other instruments of pest control like chemicals, sure. uh, by their very nature, they're incredibly specific because we actually define a species in biology as something that's capable of producing viable offspring with itself. So in order for two organisms to be a member of the same species, they have to be able to mate and have offspring that are viable. Mm -hmm. So what that means is if I'm using a weapon like a genetically engineered insect that passes on a lethal gene by mating, then it can only affect its own species by definition. Sure. So it's, it's not like releasing, you know, uh, a pesticide into the air that will kill anything, good or bad, that yeah. happens to fly through that area. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit concerning when we're talking about driving a species to extinction deliberately. But when we're using techniques like the, you know, dominant lethal gene in insects, there's very little, if any, actual collateral damage that we've been able to identify. So if anyone's tracking the way I'm tracking, the first thing they think about is... So you're talking about genetics being used as a weapon in insects, uh-huh. but <laughs> as we think about the uh, human ways in which this technology or advancement might be used, uh, could it be weaponized in a similar way in the human um, genetic makeup? Well, it depends because, I mean, essentially we're talking about a very sophisticated form of eugenics is what it would entail. So yeah. these, these genetic weapons, as I've been describing them, work by eliminating the future generation of an organism. Like the bug itself that we grew up to have this gene will die because we've done it. Um, but it's not like releasing it will kill off the wild insects. It will just keep them from having another generation. It's not like a pesticide where, you know, once you release it, everything dies. So it's the types of things that humans tend to use their weapons against or people who are already alive that they don't want to be alive or people with one particular advantage that they want to disadvantage. I mean, there's there's less 
less, less of a long view. Exactly. There's less incentive to try and influence the next generation to that degree. Although certainly it does happen, and that's why we talk about things like eugenics or genocide, all yeah. of which share the common root word of gene. Yeah. And so when it comes to how it might be used for you know insidious purposes, I feel like the more likely scenario is people using it to give themselves an unfair advantage as opposed to necessarily using it to harm someone else. When you say unfair advantage, what would you see as an unfair advantage? Just curious. Well, let's talk about, for example, using genes to enhance the body even beyond what's natural. Like, It's one thing to say, well, here's a genetic disease that we can cure by altering the person's DNA to make it normal. But what if we were to say, well, here's a way of manufacturing a protein or writing a gene that actually gives them you know, more strength or more resilience or more intelligence or whatever you like. Sure. And, and if that happens, if we're able to use that technology safely and reliably, then it to not have it would almost be like not having the internet or not having a cell phone. Very quickly it would become unfeasible to be competitive in the world without that advantage. Sure. So an example might be like baseball. I remember back when Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire were hitting all these home runs and then down the road, they find out they're all using HGH. Right. And um, and they're, they're, so they're using these things that are enhancing their ability, their strength, their even reflexes and their their ability to... It's almost slowing the game down for them, some would say, too. It's the, there's other things they're using that are allowing their recall of the baseball to even be coming in at a slower pace potentially all these different th- yeah. all these different you know ways that they're gaining an advantage exactly would and that be would that be a good analogy i guess for I, like there's going to be an even playing field but then there's going to be people who are able to have an unfair advantage absolutely I, I think it's i think it's an excellent example because it also would be a practical application of the technology yeah. so hgh is a hormone that is the instructions on how to make it are in our dna and we could easily write a sequence of dna or a way of triggering that DNA so that some people naturally produce more HGH. Mm -hmm. And again, because we talked about ways that genes can be turned on or off, we could even make it so that people could increase or decrease their HGH levels just by even taking an otherwise innocuous chemical that would turn that gene on or off so it doesn't run out of control. I mean, that's that's one very specific way in which this could be used for advantage in athletics. If you want a very athletic kid, you could give them the ability to control their HGH levels genetically. Wow. So what, what I understand is that like this technology back in the early 2000s, I guess the Human Genome Project and stuff, we're talking about like, what, a billion dollars or something to map that? <laughs> or it was some crazy amount of money, right? Yeah. And now that similar technology and the ability to do that is pretty, I guess what I'm saying is it seems to be exponentially getting easier. And I guess what I would say is with artificial intelligence, growing and growing every day, the idea that like all these different mathematical equations of sorts, because it's code pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost going to be, right now it's a lab where most of this work's being done, correct? But like, it's eventually going to be like a computer. Actually, I think we've, we've long passed the point where it's moved into computers more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So like as AI develops and artificial intelligence is able to do some of these, I guess, discoveries almost... Um, I hesitate to say autopilot because I don't really understand that world, but I guess mm-hmm. um, computers that are thinking for themselves and able to actually like process themselves these some of these problems out, do you think the precision in the next 20 years will be there to the point to where it's like, yeah, 
choose your kid's eye color? <laughs> or do you think that's just not going to be a practical enough application to where... Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be quite practical enough yet, and partly because, you know, anything... Well, there's a few reasons for it. Part of it is the technological limitations. Part of it is there is enough ongoing ethical discussion that yeah. not everyone wants to pursue the technical solutions quite sure. yet. Um, and even... Even if all that were to line up perfectly, the question of whether or not a parent is willing to say, like, okay, I wouldn't mind having, you know, this uh, this fertilized egg, you know, removed and activated ex vivo and subject to this treatment that may end up killing it and not actually succeeding. Because that does sometimes happen mm-hmm. with the techniques we use to introduce material into a cell. Like I had said, with the techniques I used in undergrad, we wouldn't expect more than a 10 to 30% success rate on the cells we used. Mm-hmm. Now, we had a whole plate of cells... And so that's still a sizable number that did take up the gene we were programming them with. But if you only have one shot because you have one fertilized egg and that's your child or it's not, some people may not want to take that risk. And some people would demand that we have a 100% success rate. If you define life beginning at conception, that would mean that that one cell is a living thing that was lost because someone tried to manipulate it. Well, now you're getting into a great question, right? Because I was taught (laughs) growing up life begins at conception. Uh-huh. And a lot of as I'm looking into this stuff, it's like, man, if life begins at conception, like, first of all, IVF, right, and all that, there's a whole lot of question marks there, like in vitro fertilization, mm-hmm. right? Like, at what that, that technology came about late 70s, early 80s, and I think is over 40 years old, you know what I mean? But, like, the ethical questions when that came out were very mm-hmm. hotly debated, and mm-hmm. and now... I know many people, including Christians, including conservative Christians, including those who would be very pro-life, I guess, um, who have used that. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm saying is the ethical questions that existed there don't seem to be as present as the tangible need that I guess it meets to be able to potentially have a child if you're not able to naturally. Right. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. So the practical use is is such that it has... that I would say the ethical conversation is kind of left um, back here, but I do think that that ethical conversation is going to become relevant mm-hmm. as we talk about genetics because so much of this is exactly what you just said. If you believe life begins at conception... There's all kinds of questions, right? Right. Even with IVF, right? Right. And and especially when you're talking about something essentially cosmetic like eye color or about an enhancement that you could probably live your life without but would be nice to have, then, you know, the threshold that you have to meet in order to consider the technology safe goes higher. If mm. we're talking about a couple who both have a uh, recessive mutation disease and it's a guarantee that their kids are going to have it if they don't do something to fix it. You know, it, it may be reasonable even with imperfect technology to try and give that future child a shot. But, you know, if we, if we say that using this technology of manipulating the cell doesn't actually yield success or causes harm to it in even a small percentage of cases, most people would probably find that unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, to varying degrees. I mean, obviously different people have different convictions about what is and isn't okay to do with a yeah. single-celled human life. Do you think the line between medical and cosmetic is going to blur real fast? <laughs> I only mean that from um, the standpoint of like, yeah, is asthma... So asthma is important, but obviously not as important as like 
a breast cancer gene of some sort or like I don't I don't even know if there's a breast cancer gene I guess I'm just saying I mean, there's like, a few I mean yeah. the, the BRCA gene for example is okay. a common one people talk about there you go yeah um, between that and like okay I have asthma my kid could probably live with asthma like I didn't have like dehabilitating asthma I had you know as like but if there was a gene that you see what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah, and not that I, asthma I have, is not that asthma is. I might have cosmetic. chosen different examples, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not that asthma is cosmetic. But I guess what I'm saying is like, or something like psoriasis, psoriasis, or things that, or, or things like acne. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, you could go, you could go a lot of different places. But I'm even saying maybe the line between medical and cosmetic was was the wrong analogy. I guess what I'm saying is between essential and non-essential might be the right. way of saying. And often one distinction that we draw is the difference between treatment and enhancement. Okay. So treatment is you have a deficiency. I'm going to bring you back up to what a normal or healthy person would be. Enhancement is saying there's nothing wrong with you, but I want to make you better. Um, that is where things get a little bit dicey in some ways. And, and there are some things where I may not be able to really say which side of the fence it falls on. So, for example, I had LASIK eye surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I, could, I couldn't read the big E at the top of the chart in my right eye. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I wore contacts for the longest time, um, but I, I couldn't wear glasses because they would fall off when I did CPR when I was an EMT. Uh, and contacts were difficult when I worked a 36-hour shift and couldn't take them out. So Oof. I decided to get LASIK, um, but I thought to myself, like, you know, I didn't, I could probably find a way around this. I didn't really need it, but my life is a lot more convenient now. Um, and it's, it's sort of like I had a problem. I mean, myopia is a disease, and it was treated. It was cured. Yeah. But that being said, there's a reason insurance doesn't cover it. There's never a person who absolutely must have LASIK and they have no choice. So I, I kind of debated back and forth, like, is this something I should be spending $3,000 on? And I'm comfortable I made the right decision. But, you know, more now, is and there more, a gene that you would pass down to your kids were you to have kids for that particular... For, like, myopia? Yeah. Nearsightedness? Oh, absolutely. It definitely has a genetic component to so it. So if... Yeah, so see, there you go, right? Do right. you want, is that, is that one of the smaller, less necessary things? I, and I think that's going to be a fascinating thing because I think, when I think about faith, right, and I think about the faith community, the church in general, we tend to have a lot of black and white answers, like mm-hmm. that we try to <laughs> fit um, these types of conversations into. But as I have like just barely scratched the surface of like genetics, our black and white world is just not going to work in this conversation. No. Because it's so complex. Right. And then you then you have to import the reality that these are real people. Yeah. And you also have to talk about like cloning being a potential real mm-hmm. thing, like and even like importing that into like a real like importing empathy into these scenarios. Like someone's yeah. 3-year-old drowns in a pool and they want to clone them. Mm-hmm. They want to use their, their the genetic makeup that they have to, to clone them. You, How far are we from that, do you think? Oh, uh, farther than popular media would like us to think. And you think so? Legally very, very well, far. Well, legally very far. Yeah. It's not going to happen in the United States first. No. Um, but, I mean, could it be happening somewhere else right now? I don't think or so. Or being attempted to be happening I mean, somewhere else right now? Someone is probably working on it. Okay. I don't think it's being done. Do you think in the next 10 years we'll have it? 20 years. Mm. 
I don't know if we're working that hard on it. Okay. It's and again, part of the reason it's not a priority is because at least in the U.S. it's not legal. Yeah. And so there's no money to be made from it, and that is the final nail in the coffin for any technology. Oh, of course, we always follow the green, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there would be a lot of money to be made in probably just the breakthrough, right? Like, of like oh, I mean it. If not the money, you know, the fame, the academic sure. reputation. I mean, there's a lot of incentives for scientists to do something besides being rich. What do you do? You think? Do you think it should be illegal? Uh, I mean, maybe that's a trap question. No, no, know. no. It's it's a good one to be honest because it's certainly one that a lot of people are asking. I I think that the way to answer that question is to say: Is there any situation where it would be needed? And if so, then we could talk about whether or not it should be legal. So. Most of the scenarios that people can come up with for when it would be a good idea to clone someone, it usually isn't for that person's interest. So if you asked my mother, you know, should you be allowed to clone Nate McConkie, your son? Mm-hmm. Um, she might say yes in the scenario that you described. If, yeah. I, if I died in a freak lab accident and sure. didn't get superpowers one day, sure. she might be tempted, for example, to try and bring me back in the form of a clone. Or if there's... Um, I don't know if there's someone who we found as a particularly brilliant person like Albert Einstein, should we clone him and bring him back so we can have, you know, another genius to develop all these breakthroughs in technology? I mean, the, the common thread here is the person being cloned isn't the person who benefits from the cloning. It's everyone around them who wants to keep them present or wants yes. to have more of them. Yes. Yep. And so it's it's never something that someone would ask to be done for themselves for the most part, oh, yeah. because a clone is genetically identical to you, but it doesn't contain all of your thoughts, your memories, your experiences. It's not like cloning yourself as a way to avoid death, for example, because you still die, and a new person who comes out from cloning isn't you. It doesn't pick up where you left off, and there's no guarantee it'll have the same interests or skills or talents that you had. Yeah. Um, and as a simple example, identical twins have the exact same genetics. So identical twins come from a single fertilized egg that separates early on enough that the two separated parts can still become an entire fetus. And so what that means is, you know, if, if you were to test the DNA of one twin and test the DNA from the other, you wouldn't be able to tell what comes from what. Huh. And yet two identical twins can be completely different people. They can have different career choices. They can marry completely different individuals. One of them can be in prison. The other one can be a saint. I mean, there's no guarantee that there's much similarity beyond the biology there. And part of that's because, as we mentioned, you know, the environment influences how your body works just as much, if not more so, than the genes. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike most living things, humans are defined a lot more by you know, our, our memories, our skills, our, our learned abilities than the ones that just come with us from nature. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something we really don't have a way of replicating yet. Yeah. Because the nurture is going to be very different. Right. Then right. like, I mean the nature nurture conversation, right. Did that come from nature or nurture? But like, is going to be different from your clones going to have a different experience than you. Right. Interesting. So I guess no one would really be asking to be cloned. Um, it would only be something that you'd want from another individual, I suppose. And I guess it would be very difficult to advocate for that. And there aren't too many people who would probably be pressing for that to be a legal option. I don't know. I just feel like whenever that we're on the precipice of a technological advancement, while I do understand your scenario for like, well, there has to be a reason. I think sometimes just the reason is like, can we do it? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that because I advocate for it because I'm really not sure what I think about that. But yeah. 
I think it'll happen because we have a certain desire for pioneering into the unknown. Yeah, it's true. I almost think you could say that's in our genetic code in some no, ways. No, it is. We're, we're, <laughs> we're absolutely programmed that if something can be done, we at least want to give it a shot. We want to examine every nook and cranny of creation as best we can. And I mean, it's it's not just something you see in the lab. I mean, you go into a certain restaurant. I won't name any specific names, but mm-hmm. they, they bring you, for example, a sandwich with fries on. I'm like, wow, did humanity really need this? Yeah. <laughs> I know we were capable of it, but should we have? <laughs> oh, man, that's great. What, what do you think some of the societal consequences as we, like, and not just consequences, benefits. Yeah. I mean, I don't, a consequences sounds like a, it's all negative. It's, and maybe here's the way of asking it. What are some ways that we've already benefited from um, genetics of late? Like, and then what are some things you see on the horizon that'll be beneficial? But then what are some concerns that you have maybe in the area of potential consequences in the next maybe, we'll just say 10 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to answer that in parts, some ways that we've been using genetics now is mostly in diagnostic more so than therapeutic approaches. So, um, for example, every year we probably discover at least three new genetic diseases just in Pennsylvania alone. Wow. Um, for example, especially with populations with a strong founder and bottleneck effect, like in the Amish population, okay. a fairly isolated segment where there tends to be some degree of inbreeding without much mixing from the outer communities. And in that particular scenario, we find um, a predominance of certain conditions that may not exist anywhere else. Okay. Um, one example would be congenital nephrotic syndrome, which we see more of in central PA than anywhere else in the world except perhaps Finland. And what is that? Um, so that's a condition where you're, to put it very simply, your kidneys can't hold on to things that should stay in the bloodstream. Normally, your kidneys work by filtering out toxins and chemicals that are in abundance or excess that you don't need, even something harmless like electrolytes that may just not be in the right balance. But in people with this condition, they also lose excess good protein into their urine. And that includes the antibodies of their immune system. That includes signaling hormones. That includes certain protective factors that are necessary for growth and development. Um, And so the children who are born with this condition can have overwhelming infections. They can have severe kidney disease and renal failure. Um, They can become dehydrate just from loss of fluid alone. Essentially, the kidneys just become overzealous at removing things from the body. Okay. Um, so that's one of many particular examples of genetic diseases that emerge in these specific populations. And by studying them and seeing how these things happen, um, we learn about certain genetics, um, certain gene sequences in you know the human genome and how they may have implications for a disease that we didn't recognize before. Mm-hmm. And it also expands our library of things that we know to look for when we do genetic testing on someone that we suspect has such a disease. So if someone mm-hmm. comes in and they have a baby that you know has some some deformity, some malformation, something that doesn't quite look right, or they're born with a serious heart condition or kidney problems. Um, one of the things we very frequently do is perform genetic testing to find out if it's something that the parents passed on, and if so, if they're likely to give it to one of their other kids. And also, when you knowing, say genetic testing, are you saying on the parents and the kid? Yes, that's and an important. What does that look like? Is that just taking a sample of blood? Or? Yes. Okay. So typically, it involves taking a blood sample. Um, there are some things that we can do just on the baby, especially if we know what genes we're looking for. Okay. If someone, for example, has DeGeorge syndrome, that's a condition where there's a very specific area of the genome that's been deleted. 
mm-hmm. um, just by mutation. It just happens sometimes. Uh, in that case, we only need to test the baby, and we look for those genes and see if they're there or if they're gone. And if they're gone, then we say that child has DeJord syndrome in this case. Mm. Um, but if, if we don't know what gene is involved, um, if we found something that we think may not have been found before in a human, we will have to test both the baby and both parents. And we do that to see, does the baby have something different about their DNA that the parents do not have? Did the baby have a mutation when developing in the womb, and this is a brand new condition that he didn't inherit from either parent? Okay. Um, and we find that very frequently, actually. Yeah. But more often, we find genetic changes that we don't even understand. We say, well, your child has a heart condition. Uh, we ran the genetic testing, and we found a mutation in this particular group of genes that we think is actually involved in liver function. So... It probably doesn't have anything to do with this, and we might have just stumbled upon it by coincidence. Maybe it's harmless. Maybe he'll end up having liver problems. Maybe it affects the liver in some way that puts stress on the heart. We don't really know. Hmm. And we maintain vast files of patients that we found something on and have no idea what it means. And we hope that down the line, we may find more information. We go back through those files and say, oh, look, we actually did learn something about this gene. You know, We should contact this family and let them know that we now have more information for them. Interesting. So uh, for the practical, tactical realities here, you you take a blood sample from the parents, from the kid. Mm-hmm. How long does that take to get the genetics Ooh, back it on can take It can take weeks to weeks. months. Okay, so that's a process. That's not like a, we're just going to send us to the lab and find out in the next hour. Well, like some things we can do that with. So if we're looking for a gene that we know what we're looking for, okay. like if we want to do what's called a, a fish analysis for DeGeorge syndrome, okay. that is exactly as you described. We take a gene, for, we take the, the sample from baby, we look for something very specific that we know where to find okay. it and we have an answer. And that all is, is, is so that's technically happening in somewhat in-house. Like you have, you would have lab techs right yeah, there. Yeah, to differing to degrees. Yeah. And then... The more complicated ones are maybe in-house, but maybe are even going somewhere else to another yeah. more, um, I guess... A more specialized, specialized facility, usually. Facility, sure. And part of genetic testing involves looking through a library of, exi- of outside laboratories and saying, okay, they specialize in you know, so my migration disorders for development in the womb, and they specialize in brain malformations over there. Oh, wow. And they may have specific tests that are more effective at detecting some of these genetic sequences. Okay. And the thing to keep in mind is there's a lot of ways your genetics can be messed up. So we talk about the letters G, C, A, and T in genetics, uh-huh. which is a sort of the alphabet of the genetic code. Um, those are the only four letters that exist in DNA, but their combination can produce an infinite number of proteins. Um, If you have a very simple mutation where you change a G to an A, for example, you can detect it by simply looking at the spelling, if you will, of the DNA. Um, But you can also have a different type of mutation where maybe you only have one copy of a gene in your nucleus, but um, by mistake you may actually have duplication and you may have two or three or more. And the amount of DNA can sometimes be directly correlated with the amount of protein that that DNA produces. So if, for example, I'm talking about a cell that produces a hormone, like human growth hormone, for example, yeah. if I have too many copies of the gene that does it, and the, the cell doesn't have means of regulating that, that would directly mean they produce too much of that hormone. Or they may have fewer copies than they need, or something like that. So mm. it's... It sounds simple to just, quote, do genetic testing, but the fact of the matter is the genetics can be different in ways you don't expect sometimes, and knowing how to look for it can be more difficult than it sounds. So when I say, like, genetic splicing, that's pretty much just 
if I was to think of our genetics being like a big, long piece of paper, thin piece of paper, you're cutting, adding, and then re-taping. That's fair. Like that's a, obviously it's not not what it is, but I'm saying like that's a way of saying what it is. And is that what CRISPR is doing? So yes, kind of. And by the way, maybe tell people what CRISPR is because I was talking with, uh, some people today, and they, they were like, I've never even heard of what CRISPR sure. is. So CRISPR is a technique for manipulating a genome that actually relies on sort of a, a natural immune system, that, especially prokaryotic cells, meaning things like bacteria would have. Um, the idea behind the enzymes from which CRISPR is derived is that uh, if a virus infects a cell, it does so by reprogramming the cell, which it does by releasing DNA. Um, In the simplest terms, a virus is just a bit of DNA or RNA, which is a similar form, Mm -hmm. that can put itself inside a cell. So a virus isn't a living thing. It doesn't eat. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't drink or produce waste. It's just essentially self-replicating DNA or RNA. Mm. Um, So what happens is if a bacteria is attacked by a virus, the only sign may be that some DNA is present that shouldn't be there. Um, And that's also the only way the virus can infect the cell, by encoding on that DNA the instructions for duplicating itself and eventually killing the bacteria. So give me an example of a virus that would do this. Oh, all viruses do this to some degree. Any virus is manipulating your genetic That is the only thing viruses are capable of doing. Okay. Is influencing. So if a virus... if you've ever had a virus, Mm -hmm. your code was manipulated for a period of time or continues to be? Ah, that's a very good question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying. It, it depends, I know I keep going down different rabbit holes yeah, while we're answering your yeah, question. It, that depends on the virus. Okay. So if you're talking about the common cold, for example, okay, yeah. um, the most common thing we see is called the rhinovirus. The word rhino means nose because it infects the nose preferentially. Gotcha. Um, that virus releases DNA that tells your cell to make more copies of that virus. And then those copies form inside the cell. And then the virus basically causes the cell to die and release all those viruses into the neighboring cells. Wow. And that's how it spreads from cell to cell or from person to person. So in that case, the only cells that have their DNA hacked by this virus will eventually die. Okay. So when you get over the cold, the only cells that are still alive are the ones that were not hacked, so to speak. Okay, gotcha. But not every virus is so straightforward and reckless. Um, talking about something like chickenpox, for example. So mm. chickenpox, a lot of people don't realize, is actually a form of herpes virus. Okay. And all of the herpes viruses have one or two little tricks in common. And in particular, these viruses actually mix their DNA into the DNA of the cell that they infect. Mm. And when they do that, they can often go into cells that um, they don't kill. They can sort of leave it lying almost like a sleeper agent, if you will. Mm. So if you had chickenpox as a child it may surprise people to learn that a copy of the DNA from that virus probably still lives inside usually nerve cells and is currently inside you to this day. Hmm. And effectively just sort of lies there in wait. And every now and then, if it senses the opportunity, so to speak, it may reactivate. And it won't kill that nerve cell because that's its home base. That's its safe ground, if you will. But maybe it releases viruses to neighboring cells without having to kill the cell that it's a part of. Mm. And then it can start over an infection over again. And that's exactly what happens when people get shingles. So shingles is basically the awakening of a virus that has been laying dormant in your body since you had chickenpox as a kid. 
It can be silent for decades. That is so painful. Yes, it is. I understand. So when you say it's in the nerve. Well, well, the reason it's painful is because it infects the nerve itself. And so that's that's the reason why some viruses are particularly hard to eradicate. And another example is HIV. So HIV actually does something similar to CRISPR. It uses a, a nasty little enzyme called integrase, where it basically takes its DNA and splices it into the DNA of white blood cells. And some of those white blood cells die, and that's the reason why it causes immunodeficiency. It kills off your immune system. But some of them, it sort of lies silent, and the cells can actually release the virus without dying. So that basically forms a way way of continually producing more of this HIV. The reason you can't get rid of it is because it's mixed itself into the body's own DNA. You can't get rid of it without killing all of the normal cells. Um, but any herpes virus does something similar, and that includes things like mononucleosis, which is related to the herpes viruses. That includes you know, the classic form of herpes that causes things like cold sores on the mouth. And that's why those things keep coming back, is because once they've programmed the cells of your body to duplicate themselves, there doesn't, at least not at present, appear to be a way to get rid of them. Hmm. They're there forever. So like CRISPR was accidentally found too, kind of like right away. We well, it's, chance, right? yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we have to go back to describing what CRISPR is because yeah, I talked about sorry. how viruses work. But, but, but I think that's yeah. actually going to be really helpful for explaining what CRISPR is. Like yeah. From this, go ahead. So CRISPR essentially is the body's way of fighting back against viruses. Now, not our bodies. This was found in things like bacterial cells. And CRISPR is a collection of you know, enzymes and certain proteins related to them that can hunt down foreign DNA, recognize that it's coming from a virus, and cut it up to destroy it. Mm. But what's really interesting is many systems like the one that's used in CRISPR, uh, humans have a similar version but not quite the same principles, they work often by recognizing specific sequences of DNA. So in human cells, we use something called RNAi, RNA interference proteins. Um, They look for RNA, which is kind of related to DNA, and they actually carry around a sort of a template, almost like a little wanted poster, and they compare it to every strand of RNA they see. And if it matches, they destroy it. Mm. And so what we can do is we can teach enzymes like the ones used in CRISPR to go in and destroy a certain segment of DNA. And by doing so, we can make it cut the DNA at very specific points. I can program it to think that one specific part of the genome is actually something that's designed to go and attack. It goes in and it cuts the genome at that point. And then that creates an opportunity to introduce a new gene in its place. Do we get to determine what gene goes in its place? Or is yes, that we can do that. The body's doing? We okay. can do that. Do you, is that something we're doing now or is that a technology down the road? We're doing it now. Okay. Um, and it's, it's predominantly done you know, in vitro, meaning it's, it's done like test tubes and dishes. It's not something that we're necessarily doing on humans to any significant degree, although the technology is surprisingly easy to get your hands on. There's YouTube videos of people injecting themselves with, you know, cells they've manipulated with CRISPR. That's the thing that people do. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> weird, isn't it? It like, is. <laughs> so give me a practical application of that then. Like, okay, so, so I'm a YouTube <laughs> kid doing this what am I thinking is going to happen or what am I like I mean obviously uh, that's crazy that we have the ability to do that just on our own but if people have the ability to do it on their own obviously there's doctors and scientists that are that are light years ahead of where they're at right and so what I guess I'm trying to say is like what are some of the practical ways that that technology are we saying like 
Because when you say like holds up a wanted poster, can can you inject cells in me that would then go hold up a wanted poster against HIV? That's exactly the the thought that we're trying to explore in this area. Um, and there's been at least a few demonstrated cases of people programming you know enzymes like this to go out and and snip the HIV genome out of cells that it's infected. Um, hmm. Now, again, that's that's a logical treatment for that specific disease because it was foreign material introduced into the cell. We can find a way to remove it back out. Um, but I also talked about the distinction between treatment and enhancement. Could one do this for something that's normally part of the genome, something that you know isn't wrong for being in there, but for whatever reason people wanted to manipulate it? Uh, and one that's been a particular interest for hobbyists is the protein myostatin. So... Myostatin, and this was very popular in lifting circles maybe a couple years ago, myostatin is a protein that limits the production of muscle. So the idea is muscle is very metabolically expensive. You burn lots of calories a day just maintaining it. It uses up lots of proteins that could be used for, you know, essential organs or things that your body needs to survive. We don't really need to have muscles beyond a certain point just for day-to-day survival. Sure. But obviously there are people who wish they had more of it. I'm one of those. Yeah. (laughs) So that being said... I'm about to get me a CRISPR kit. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So that being said... Uh, This myostatin protein makes evolutionary sense because you don't want to waste too much energy building up muscle when you've got other more important things to do. But now that we live in a world where we're probably not in danger of starving to death, at least not very often in this country, Mm -hmm. it's, it's less necessary than it used to be. And there's a lot of temptation to try and deactivate this. And, um, you know, in, in, its, in its early days of uh, popularity in pop culture, uh, very frequently there'd be ingredients in like post-workout supplements that would describe themselves as myostatin inhibitors. That was a popular term. Wow. Um, there really isn't any evidence that any of those work. But something like CRISPR to remove that particular gene obviously would be a tempting choice for people. And we've done studies like this in mice even before the days of CRISPR. We've actually done uh, knockout studies, for example, in mice. And a knockout study is anytime you knock out a region of the genome by inactivating it with um, a programmed virus that does so by RNA interference proteins or by very similar mechanisms to what CRISPR does now. And, I mean, you can look up pictures of these mice that have had myostatin turned off. They look like, you know, these most ripped jack yeah, mice you've ever seen. I've seen these. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, that, and, and I guess what I would say is, like, if someone were to do that to themselves, they don't know what the unintended consequences could potentially be. Right. So we, we know that there is such a thing as too much muscle tissue. Okay. Um, we know that additionally, because muscle is very metabolically expensive, there are other mechanisms in the body for suppressing it. Things like stress hormones, for example, tend to melt away muscle. Okay. Um, if you produce a lot of muscle and then you break it down very quickly, if, for example, your body starts turning against that and activating some feedback mechanisms to overcome it, then you could find yourself in rhabdomyolysis, for example, yeah. uh, where your muscles break down and then the debris can clog up your kidneys. It can put you in heart failure. I mean, there's a lot of issues that can come out of that. Okay, real quick. I'm going to have to have a conversation with you about rhabdo because this is actually a really popular <laughs> conversation in the CrossFit community. I so if anyone's it. listening for genetic purposes, we're just going to take a U-turn real quick and go to where <laughs> Justin wants to go. So, so I was wondering. So tell me about rhabdo because in CrossFit, you do these high-intensity workouts mm-hmm. and... Um, Rhabdo is a real thing people get concerned about. And some people I know have had it, like especially if you do high intensity for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Um, What's happening when you have rhabdo? All right. So first off, 
it, it's it's probably a bad thing that I immediately knew you would recognize the term rhabdomyolysis. <laughs> everything Dude. I said, I'm like, I, I know that he's going to know this When you get into CrossFit is. and you yeah. Google CrossFit like for like the first any time, CrossFit anyone who has says heard that word, well, anyone who's like, don't do CrossFit, it's always like you're going to get rhabdo. <laughs> and like I've been doing it for two years, I, I don't believe I've had rhabdo just because I would probably know. Um, mm-hmm. But like I've certainly heard from people who have had yeah. it, like seen videos of people who have had it and. Usually they were going at a rate that they knew was unsustainable for their body. Yeah, we know there are a few things in particular that predispose. There are a few things that make an exercise high risk, I suppose. Okay. So high intensity, um, large numbers of reps with quick tempo, and in particular, larger muscle groups tend to do it more than small muscle groups. And the most infamous exercise for doing this is squats. Partly because you're using a whole lot of some of the largest groups of muscles in your body, especially in the lower extremities. You're I mean, describing every CrossFit workout. No, I am I'm just aware. kidding. <laughs> I am aware. You're describing a lot of them, though. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is actually happening, I mean, we can break it down. So yeah. rhabdomyo refers to the type of cells that you find in muscles. And lysis in any type of cellular parlance means breaking down. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You're literally physically breaking apart muscles on the cellular level. Hmm. So any exercise that we use for strength training is designed to somewhat injure, at least stress the muscles, because that's the signal to make them grow. Tearing, breaking down, yeah, yeah. But if you tear it hard enough, eventually you tear it out, um, and that's bad. So what happens is, um, in particular, the chemical that we look for includes things like myoglobin and creatinine kinase, um, which are both uh, a protein and an enzyme, respectively, that are present in high amounts inside muscle cells. So myoglobin is actually very similar to hemoglobin, which is the protein in your blood that carries oxygen. Muscles actually maintain this protein so they can keep a little supply of oxygen handy in case they need it for a time of stress. Hmm. Um, And creatinine kinase, which you recognize as being related to creatine, probably... Yeah. Um, that is related to just basic um, metabolism within the cell for energy production. So when these chemicals, which are present in very high amounts in muscles, leak out into the bloodstream, the biggest organ they stress out the most is the kidneys. Yeah. And I have had patients with rhabdomyolysis. So and, you've seen this. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. I have had patients with rhabdomyolysis who wound up on dialysis because the kidney damage was so severe. And I, I would say just in my personal experience, it's maybe 50-50 for who recovers and who ends up being on dialysis for a long time. And if you've never had any experience with dialysis, at least hemodialysis involves coming into perhaps not a hospital, but a dialysis center three times a week for hours and hours at a time while a machine removes your blood, cleans it, and puts it back in your body to replace the function of the kidneys. It's not a pleasant experience, and I wouldn't recommend it. So we we do care a great deal about it. And the other thing is when people have kidney failure, um, one of the most common signs they see is that their their body can't regulate fluids correctly. So they start getting swollen, puffy, fluid builds up. And in people with the right predisposition for it, that can actually put them in heart failure. Um, Mm. So it's, it's not a benign illness, but it also has degrees to it. Um, There's a difference between uh, the rhabdomyolysis that, a, you know, a, an exercise enthusiast would get and the kind that someone gets when, you know, like an old lady falls and she's stuck on the ground and she's lying there for so long that the muscle on her back starts to break down. Okay. Um, actually that's probably one of the next two 
overzealous athletes, the most common group we see rhabdomyolysis in is in people who are found unconscious, who, who fail and can't get up. Um, physical compression against a muscle will also cause it to die and break down. And you mm-hmm. see that when people don't move and they're lying on one spot for a long period of time. If I'm in the middle or after a intense CrossFit workout, how would I know I have rhabdo? <laughs> well, for one thing, uh, those chemicals that your kidney filters out are visible. Um, oftentimes people, their first sign will be their urine turns the color of cherry wood. Okay. Um, if it's really, really dark or really red, um, that usually tips people off. And most commonly they think they're peeing blood. Um, okay. cause myoglobin like hemoglobin, it's very similar to, to the, the protein that gives the color to blood as well. So it looks very similar. So that's a good cue. That's a good cue. To say. Now, most people who are peeing red urine would probably want to see a doctor regardless. Yes, <laughs> I would hope so. Normally, I don't need to tell you that's a bad thing, but recognizing that that's related to the exercise is important. Now, what's the treatment for, if I come in with rhabdo, you're going to give me like IV fluids? Yeah, like, so I, I want to try and rehydrate you to dilute out as much of those yeah. harmful chemicals in the blood as possible. And the most important thing is making sure your electrolytes don't get out of whack. Okay. When your kidneys overwhelm, the most dangerous thing that can happen happen is you build too much potassium, for example. So there's a few reasons why that happens. Every cell in your body is rich in potassium. So anything that breaks down cells spills potassium into the blood. And also, your kidneys are responsible for removing excess potassium. So if your kidneys aren't working, then there's nowhere for it to go. And a normal potassium level is four. Once it gets to six, we consider you to be in significant danger. And by nine, most people's heart would stop. And I would say, I'm trying to think of the last, the last patient I had with rhabdo had a potassium of, I want to say 6.7 or so. So he was getting up there. Wow. Um, So it's, there isn't anything we can do to fix the muscle that's been broken down. That's lost. What we can do is we can help to save the kidneys and we can make sure that you don't have any dangerous complications in the meantime. Are you likely going to feel a legit soreness in that particular muscle group? Yes. And oftentimes, that's the big thing about it too, is the character of the pain is different than just the normal muscle soreness you get after a good workout. Also, it tends to come on earlier than you would expect. It's not like you wake up the next morning and you're feeling lousy. Like It it sets in sooner than you would think. And it's also there even when you're not moving. So like if you were doing a squat-heavy workout and then you're climbing stairs, like you would feel it then. Sure. But if you have rhabdo from doing squats, you would feel it in your glutes and your quads and everywhere else, even when you're just lying in bed not doing anything. So you don't have to provoke it for it to be sore. Gotcha. Unlike typical muscle soreness after a workout. Yeah, because in the CrossFit community, man, I don't want to keep going down this train too much, <laughs> but like, you're sore all the time. Like, because the moment you find, like, there is no <clears throat> arrival or like, like you, you push to the next thing, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I, that's what I like about it. I yeah. know people who, 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 uh, who enjoy a challenge and the consistent being challenged, but that's a real concern. So that's yeah. interesting how that interacts even with genetics. Right. Right. And to stay on that for a second, you mentioned creatine. Now <laughs> I'm thinking about, and you've mentioned protein a lot. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people drink a post workout protein shake. Mm-hmm. I'm actually literally right now drinking branch chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. What are those as far as like genetically speaking? Like- oh, so, um, well, branch chain amino acids, you yeah. mean? So the, the branch chain amino acids typically are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got about 20 amino acids that form in the building blocks of all proteins. Branch chain amino acids are somewhat interesting because they're not just building blocks for muscle, although they certainly do that as well. 
but they seem to uniquely signal muscles to increase and hypertrophy. And one of the ways they do that is by activating a protein called mTOR. So mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. Um, it's, it's a name just based on some properties it had in the lab at one point. Um, but it's thought to be one of the most commonly implicated pathways that lead to muscle growth. And so anything that activates it is an attractive target for someone who wants to build muscle. Now, I will say the effect of BCAAs in activating this protein and leading to muscle growth is, is minor compared to all the other things. Yeah. You know, certainly people can do perfectly well without it, but the theoretical benefit is there. Um, and there's at least some reasonable clinical data that they make a difference. Um, but that works essentially by directly initiating a signaling cascade in the cells that interacts with the molecular and the genetic components to tell it, you know, to produce more muscle. Can you explain to people what hypertrophy is? Sure. So hypertrophy is an increase in the size of cells as opposed to an increase in number, which we call hyperplasia. So muscle cells themselves don't divide, just like nerve cells don't. Um, Cells can divide and then become nerves or become muscles. But, you know, the number of cells in a muscle doesn't typically increase very much. But they increase in size by producing more filaments. And filaments are the proteins that actually cause the muscle to contract. Um, And they also grow just by producing more fluid and more content to become larger. So if you were to, you know, cut a muscle through in cross-section and count the number of fibers before and after someone trains, you know, in strength training for a long period of time, the number of cells shouldn't change very much, but their diameter significantly increases. And what causes that to happen is that they've been stressed in a lifting way, but then also when I drink protein or when I have branched-chain amino acids, those can can cause those cells to, to grow? Well, it, I guess it, I'm just curious. The yeah, process. so it causes them to grow by allowing them to produce more of those filament proteins okay. that actually allow for the contraction, which is the reason why they get stronger, even though the number of cells is the same. Okay. The cells contain more of the units that actually produce that tension. Interesting. And so with things like creatine, what's that doing genetically? Or, yeah, or so, well, creatine essentially is a form of nutrition for the muscles. It's, it provides them with an energy source that only muscles really use to any significant degree. Okay. And it's particularly handy during states of anaerobic metabolism. That means when you, when you've, uh, when you kind of outstripped your oxygen supply. So um, when you're doing strenuous exercise and you're burning through uh, the fat and carbohydrates that fuel your muscles, one of the limiting factors is how much oxygen you can get in because you can only consume energy from carbs or fat in proportion to the amount of oxygen that's present. And Mm. so muscles that typically do that on a regular basis and outstrip their oxygen supply have a number of unique ways of getting extra energy in a pinch. And one of those is by metabolizing creatine. Interesting. Dude, this is turning into like the nutrition podcast. And like down the road, we are going to have to do a whole thing on nutrition. I didn't realize. You're just, you like, you have knowledge in every little area. Like whenever we are in conversation, even when we're not on a podcast, it can be any area of science. And you're like, yeah, I know about that. Yeah, I know well, about I, that. I mean, you know? I've, I've been studying this stuff for well over a decade now. I hope I've learned a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, but it's crazy because like you can just recall it right away. I, I know things that I learned decades ago, but I usually have to like go back and be like, well, let me get uh, up to date on yeah. that or something. So I guess back to genetics to stay on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> To get back on track, you said rhabdo, and it took us for a whirl there. Um, but like, so do you see this CRISPR technology? I mean, it's obviously already in use, and it's even being, um, it's decentralized to just the medical community. As you said, mm-hmm. there's other ways and applications that are 
available to common people. But like, do you, do you see that being continuing to grow and expand and potentially I have a disease Mm -hmm. that I'm dealing with, that I'm processing, whatever that is. And you inject me with some, something that like you said, runs around, puts up the wanted poster. Mm-hmm. Do you think that time's coming in the next 10, 20, 30 years in our lifetime? I am certain it is coming, and we will probably see something much like it in our lifetime to some degree. Okay. Um, the question will be what diseases are most accessible to that technology. Um, the ideal target would be one related to a specific gene, like cystic fibrosis, like sickle cell disease, like BRCA-associated breast cancer. It's less likely to work in something like coronary artery disease, or, you know, um, hypertension or some of the, some of the even more common killers, perhaps that are a factor of many, many different contributing elements, only some of which minority perhaps, or even genetic. Do you think this will be the cure to like a cancer or something like that? Oh, for some cancers. Absolutely. So, and that's perhaps not with this technology, but we very often use that strategy in treating cancer. Hmm. So one example would be something called chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML. So in order for a cell to become cancerous, it has to develop a certain number of traits, one of which is it has to program itself to replicate endlessly. So normally your cells will keep dividing until they run into their neighboring cells and then they'll stop. And you know, if you're injured, then maybe you've wiped out some cells and then they'll kind of fill in the blanks. And then once they've reached that end of the gap, then they'll just quietly behave themselves and go back to business as usual. But cancer cells aren't so polite neighbors. They keep growing and growing and expanding and invading their neighboring cells. One way that chronic myelogenous leukemia does so is it actually has a genetic mutation where two chromosomes break apart and then merge together so that the proteins line up to create a new sort of protein that normally doesn't exist in the genome. It, like, uh, it took the instructions from one page and ripped them out and put them into a new page. Hmm. And what happens as a result is there is a receptor for normally a growth hormone that's just permanently turned on. It looks like that hormone is always present and always signaling the cell to grow. So what we can do is we can manufacture a chemical that just targets that mutated receptor. And that family of of medicines called the receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, Desatinib is an example if anyone's ever heard of that one. Hmm. So what we can do is we can give someone that medicine that specifically targets the genetic problem that caused that patient to have this cancer. And very frequently, we can do that by doing genetic studies of the tumor cells and seeing how they're different from neighboring cells. And we know that certain cancers tend to favor certain types of mutations. So breast cancer, for example, famously develops mutations for something called um, the HER2 new receptor. Um, So HER2 neutral or new receptor is a similar uh, receptor that's present on certain breast cancer cells. It's present on normal cells to a different degree, but on breast cancer cells, this abnormal protein is just constantly overexpressed. Um, and I've actually used that term a few times, but expression in genetics refers to the production of the protein from a gene. Okay. So it's, it produces way too much of this, this hormone receptor on the surface. And we can actually create an antibody. Uh, there's one called Herceptin that specifically hunts down and targets any cell that has that specific protein on its surface. And so Herceptin, when it first came out, was praised as a miracle cure for breast cancer because it really only killed off those abnormal cells. 
Um, the problem is not everyone with breast cancer gets it because they made that mutation. Sometimes it's because there's too much of estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor, or it doesn't have any of those, in which case we call it the dreaded triple negative breast cancer, if anyone's had a family member with that, um, wow. meaning that we don't actually know what the ideal target is because it doesn't have one of the typical ones. Um, and, and this is just to demonstrate an important point. The reason why it's so hard to cure cancer isn't just because there's so many kinds like breast or colon or liver, but even two patients with breast cancer, the tissue that's over-replicating and forming the tumors could be doing so through a completely different strategy than the breast cancer that their sister or mother might have had. Wow. And that's why there's no golden, there's no magic cure for all cancers, yeah. let alone even all cancers of a specific type. Wow. But, but CRISPR or that kind of technique strategy approach could yeah. provide some answers potentially? Exactly. So in the case of the examples I just used, we found the gene that's involved and we were fortunate to discover a chemical that can target them. But we also know that there are some things where cancer produces one of these abnormal proteins that we don't have a direct treatment yeah. for. But if we found out how it did it, if we found out what was wrong with the genes, a tool like genetic manipulation with CRISPR or something similar could be a one-size-fits-all solution that goes after those cells and removes the pathological gene, the factor that allows it to have become cancer in the first place. And theoretically, that would work for any mutation if we were able to use it that effectively. So when I think of CRISPR, I think of two... Let, let, let's split this to two things. Let's, let's split it to a 20-year-old who, you know, wants to change something genetically. Mm -hmm. We'll say whether it's medical or cosmetic, it yeah. doesn't matter. Um, and a test tube, you know, like you, you could do either, right? Like sure. with, with, with CRISPR technology or that kind of approach, right? You can, well, I'll call it genetic hacking because I think that's a- I think it's a fair term. A fair term, yeah. right? So if I'm 20 years old and I have blue <laughs> eyes but I want green eyes, can CRISPR change that? Ah, uh, not easily. And, and the fact that you chose eyes specifically makes it a little bit tricky. Okay, let's say hair color. Oh, okay. That might be more doable. Yeah. Really? So, so I, could, I could say, I don't like that I have gray hair or that I'm balding even. Mm -hmm. You could potentially use CRISPR technology to change that? Um, Down the road. I'm not saying right yeah, now. I'm we, saying, like, I wouldn't, think I wouldn't say we're there yet, but could we be there? Yes. Have we identified the specific genetic sequences that cause your hair to be one color or the other? We kind of have, yes. Hmm. And could we find a way to snip it out, silence that gene, or add a new one in? Yes, that theoretically is possible. Whatever damage has been done up to my 20s is already done, though, correct? Correct. So if you wanted to you know, remove wrinkles, for example, maybe I could make you less likely to get them, but the ones that are there are yours to keep. Gotcha. You know, or um, another example is the buildup of plaques in the arteries from cholesterol or fat deposits or a number of other things that lead to that. We can often slow down or stop the production of those things, but we can't completely eliminate them. Uh, once they're already there, mm. they tend to stick around. Or if they do recede, it's maybe 1% per year. See, I just think of applications for this, they're going to create all kinds of questions. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, like, and that's, that's a great one. Like, you know, cosmetically... Um, people spend a lot of money to keep their hair or to, you know, yeah. to use chemicals or other things that help, you know, keep their hairline a certain way. You see the advertisements mm -hmm. for it on, you know, commercials or whatever, or right. people go through a lot of trouble to dye their hair pretty consistently, uh, to color their hair, to keep it 
from Sean Gray. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like you could go like there could be like a whole industry available mm-hmm. to say we'll change your genetic code so you no longer have to go get your hair color. Right. And, you know, that's... And what do we think about that? Like, what do you not, think about that? Do you think that's... I guess what I'm saying, obviously the question that everyone gets to, are we playing God? And, like, on hair color, it's, like, so trivial yeah. that you're just kind of, like, whatever. But, like, the applications for this are so endless that eventually yeah. we have to cross that question, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of science, and, and even I specifically have been accused of playing God, which I think is tremendously insulting. How so? How so? Oh, okay. I want to hear how. Oh, for God's sake. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You, you, said, you don't have to be detailed. I, don't, I mean, if someone's actually <laughs> legit accused you, I don't want to like bring up drama from the past, but how might you be accused of playing God? Well, so in, in my example in particular, I, I had a lot of interests in um, some of my earlier research days in cybernetic enhancements. Give me an example. Which is an ex- uh, that would be combining machine and human elements together. So yeah. obviously and this is a, this is, is going to happen. Oh, we, I do it every day. That's what a pacemaker is. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm talking about giving a patient a pacemaker, I am surgically installing a small computer operated device in their chest that via a series of wires into their heart can control their individual heartbeats. I can make it go faster or slower. I can change the sequence at which the chambers of the heart beat. I mean, that's I mean, it's an extremely useful technique for people who have very slow heartbeats or who have an electrical blockage in their heart where the signal doesn't get where it's need to or the chambers beat out of synchrony. I mean, that being said, they can come into the office and I can, you know, connect to them with a little laptop-like device and I can can play around making their heart go faster or slower right there or set at whatever rate we want. Um, Wow. That obviously is a much needed medical advancement and saves lives on a regular basis. And most people wouldn't have any issue with that because, again, I'm treating, I'm not enhancing. I'm just trying to give them a normal life when otherwise they'd have a condition that could be fatal. But does that mean that it would be wrong of me to install a device like that that could you know, somehow regulate a runner's heart to make them a more effective sprinter or something like that? Not that we can do that. The technology isn't quite good enough that people would want to have a pacemaker put in. But is there but something else? it could else? be in 20 years. Sure thing. And, and then another example, we use this same approach for a number of things like gastric pacemakers. So some people have a condition where their stomach doesn't empty effectively. Um, what they can do is they can basically produce a similar computer-operated device that stimulates the stomach and causes it to squeeze and move food through. Could you also program someone so their stomach does or doesn't empty at the right time to make someone feel full and help them lose weight, for example? Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's one possibility for this. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a million surgical approaches people have used to try and lose weight, but little things like that, little ways that we can use computers and technology to influence the normal functioning of the body in one way or the other. Well, the idea that biology and technology are going to be merging... It just seems obvious. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I mean that more from the standpoint of like, I don't memorize anyone's phone number anymore, mm-hmm. which is like a small example of this. Right. Like, I'm so reliant on, I know my wife's phone number. Mm-hmm. I know my phone number growing up, like of my house growing up. Right. I know no other phone number. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I, 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 I immediately empty information out of my brain, maybe to make space <laughs> for other stuff, but usually useless stuff. And, uh, and I always know Google's there. 
Yeah. Right? So, yeah. like, the idea that I have a device in my hand, which I can find the information I need, that's somehow merging with me, even neurologically. Mm-hmm. Um, that's coming. Oh, yeah. Whether we're okay with it or not. Yeah. Whether we're going to answer all the ethical realities of that merger, that, that's going to have huge implications, right? But Absolutely. it's also going to be a reality. And like you said, it's already happening in that field. And like yeah. we're getting accused of playing God. Yeah. Now, I mean, there are some some limitations even in what I do on a regular basis with pacemakers, for example. Um, you know, there are risks associated with them. The batteries need changed every 10 years or so. Um, if they get infected, they don't fight back, and so the whole system has to be removed. You don't get better from a pacemaker infection. Yeah. Um, so because of all the risks involved, I, I don't think we're anywhere near people having machinery, you know, surgically fused with their body anytime soon as a choice. I mean, you do it if it's necessary for staying alive, but it's too imperfect at this point. Sure. But, but like you said, it doesn't have to be physically attached to you to be very much a part of you. Yeah. You know? And, I mean, nowadays it seems that only, you know, a few eccentric people and wilderness monks don't have smartphones. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's come to the point where you would be at a significant disadvantage if you didn't have one. Um, at, uh, at work, when we have conferences, we all check in by pulling up an app on our smartphone and clicking ourselves as present. They just, the organizers of those meetings assume there's not one person in that audience who isn't able to do that, to sign in. <laughs> have you met doctors who are like living, I guess what I'm saying is like in medicine, the technology advances so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I even think, uh, my mom's a nurse practitioner, like when she started, um, she started school, like after we we all of the kids were out of the house but like when she started they were using physical charts and now she uses an ipad and mm-hmm. like you just think about right. the the advancements and how quickly things change do you have stubborn doctors cuz i know like stubborn pastors <laughs> oh, who are like do. who are like i'm not going to use that <laughs> oh, newfangled technology but like how do they get by because in your world like in some ways it can be necessary, right? Like, I mean, it depends. There's, there's a difference between I don't believe in this technology and I'm going to do it the old way and I can't figure this out. I need a young one to help me. So gotcha. there, are, there are doctors that I work with who do not know how to enter orders into the computer to get patients' medicines or tests, but they always work with interns or students or someone else who can help them to do it. Gotcha. Um, but then we talk about something like technology that we would use in the, um, you know, in, in the operating room or in the yeah. EP lab where I work. Um, and, and then there can be some serious disagreement about whether this new technology is actually helpful. Uh, but it's also a matter that, you know, any technology you don't know how to use is bad, even if it has a lot of potential in medicine. We don't really get to play around and have trial and error and sort of figure things out yeah. in surgery. Yeah. So if you're not good at something, it's the wrong tool for the job no matter what. Exactly. And so there are a few doctors who say, well, I don't want to use, you know, the Agilis sheath during cardiac catheterization for transeptal puncture during an AFib ablation. I, I don't know, something very specific like that, only because they didn't train with it. And they're very skilled at using the old-fashioned tools that they get the job done just fine. Gotcha. Okay. It's more that there's, there's hesitation to adopt something new because the consequences of not getting it right on the first try are very high. It's yeah. not usually just the old curmudgeonly man approach of, well, my way was just fine. It's that yeah. mine's the only way that I can safely treat this patient with. That makes sense. And I could see where that, yeah, that makes sense. So do you, what's your answer to someone who accuses you of playing God by putting a pacemaker in? I would say, I think you're really underestimating God if you think I'm anywhere near him with anything <laughs> I do. 
Like, we're talking about the guy who created the universe and all the laws that govern it. The fact that I put a machine in someone's chest (laughs) does not put me in the same ballpark as God. Like, how small do you think God is? Oh, man. (laughs) That he'd be threatened by me. That's a great answer. I hadn't um, considered that one. But but I will say, I mean, more appropriately, you know, God has equipped us with tools that allow us to interact with his creation. And one of the earliest commands that he gave to Adam and Eve was go out and subdue creation, essentially. Mm. And I think this is one of the many ways in which we do that. I think that as we explore creation, we discover more of the character of God, and that allows us to appreciate him in a unique degree like seeing just how deep into the cellular framework creation extends gives me a tremendous amount of respect and fascination with creation I wouldn't have had if I weren't a scientist. And seeing how that same endeavor gives me the tools to relieve suffering feels very much in line with what I'm called by God to do. So I don't know if it's a different scenario if I'm doing something cosmetic versus treatment cosmetic, not necessarily relieving human suffering in the same way. But I don't think there's anything forbidden for me within the exploration of creation within the confines that are permitted to me. Uh, And so we know, for example, well, I mean, just just as an example from scripture, if, if God wants you to not have access to something, he sees that it's done. I mean, we're talking like angels with flaming swords sort of scenarios here. Sure. I mean, typically if someone goes beyond the bounds where God doesn't want them to go, it's not tolerated for very long. Yeah. And it tends to be fairly conspicuous that someone screwed up. Yeah. Um, now, some people could say, are we reaching that point? You know, I mean, the Tower of Babel got certainly high enough before it was struck down. Sure. Are we building up there and just haven't reached that point yet? I think a lot of it does depend on your motivation. And I think that if your motivation is wrong, the tools that you're using to affect it aren't really the point that's in question. And, and it's not to say that the ends justify the means. The ends can certainly damn the means if you're using them for the wrong purpose. But I think that... Anything that's done within the confines of the law as it's provided to us from God, and anything that's done in the spirit of the greatest commandments, are we doing this in something that loves God and are we trying to love our neighbors? Very few things would necessarily transgress that within technology. And, and I mean, it's, I mean, one of my favorite passages in describing the fruit of the spirits is that, you know, it's, it's concluded by saying, against such things there is no law. And that sort of provides a safe harbor that if you're working in service of these traits, it's hard to go the wrong direction. Sure. And when Jesus says all of the law hinges on these two commandments, again, that that's the final adjudication of any decision that we make. If it works in service of those things, then it's probably right. And anything that goes against them, no matter how pleasant it looks, Mm -hmm. is probably wrong. And those two commandments are love God and love your neighbor. Exactly. And the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So like, so like I'm with you a hundred percent, but every technological advancement has had military applications. Yes. Has had, and, and I'm not the type of person who's like, oh man, we better stop because it's going to have military yeah. applications. Like, I just think that's just the nature of mm-hmm. anything that has an application is going to be used. Like we use, I mean, GPS was I believe um, first um, utilized primarily by military mm-hmm. and then eventually is something now that helps me find my way around the city. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? But, but and, Yeah, that's true for a lot of things in medicine as well. Like emergency medical service on an ambulance is based on a model that was used for, you know, combat medics. Yeah. 
and they said, hey, if we can do this in the trenches of, you know, Germany, we can do it in the streets of Harrisburg. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and Pittsburgh was actually one of the first places to have advanced care level ambulances really? based probably on that model. Yeah. Interesting. And that would be an area of, I guess, redeeming that technology. But I right. think that, okay, well, that technology is redemptive in the first place because I think it's actually taking healing into a war zone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would say that. But I mean, I think like drone warfare, for example. Yeah. You know, you look at yeah. drone strikes and you're just sitting here like, ooh, video game technology where we actually have human, you know, beings. Yeah. Um, I think of the gen, I mean, to keep this trying to keep it steering back to genetics, because <laughs> I know we keep going off more, just, we just keep touching a lot of subjects, because I think that's actually one of the realities of genetics is part, as you listen to this podcast, like you're hearing us talk about one thing, but then it opens up five other doors. Mm-hmm. Of conversation, I think yeah. that's that's part of the struggle with the it genetic conversation. About our lives, it touches everything about our lives exactly. Yeah. And so I could say, well, what is stopping America from trying to be the first to discover the most effective way to build a bunch of Captain Americas? Uh-huh. Now, not Captain America, because that's the whole story of Captain America, right? right? Like when you when you. If if I'm remembering correctly, they <laughs> wanted to build a super soldier. Yeah. Now I'm not saying like the ability to fly and the ability to do all these crazy right. things. No gene can do I, that. I'm, but... I'm more saying what our genes can already do, but enhancing what mm-hmm. they can already do: endurance, strength, whatever else. Um, maybe even mental right. uh, um, awareness. Empathetic and, soldiers aren't as effective. No, empathetic soldiers are not as effective. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, do you think that's going to happen? Uh, that's a tricky question. So, I mean, will someone explore it? Absolutely, yes. But the question is, is that the most effective way of approaching these things? So I think when it comes to the perfect soldier, the perfect soldier is one that isn't human in the first place. Uh, that's what's so attractive about drones. If you dispatch a drone, there's very, very little incentive not to do so because there's no risk of life on your part involved. Yeah. Whereas if you try and send something piloted by you know a squishy, vulnerable human being in the cockpit, yeah. you have to consider at least that individual's life and well-being as well. And you know the fact that we send the most viable asset a civilization has, its people, to fight wars, is always going to be the limiting factor in how effectively a war can be fought. And so I feel like there's more incentive for... You know, to get equally sci-fi, if we were to talk about the difference between, you know, robotic soldiers and, you know, superhuman biological soldiers, the robots have a significant advantage. They can be re- uh, produced and replaced if necessary. Um, there's no particular moral loss to them being killed off unnecessarily. You can sacrifice them without a second thought. I, I feel like that solves a lot of the problems with using human soldiers in an easier way than making the perfect super soldier among humans. Do you think we'll have robotic soldiers? Pretty. I mean, I. Of course we will. Of course. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a robot that cleans my house for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think that's the thing. Like there's, I, well, okay. Like when I think of like, think of the, if you had to think of the top three social issues that the church has had to work through over the last 30 years. Oh boy. Okay. What would you say those are? The top three social issues? Uh, probably abortion. Yep. The LGBT community. Yep. And evolution. Yes. Uh, those would be my top three as well. Yeah. And the church has approached every one of those topics predominantly black and white. Mm-hmm. Here's our answer. This is the only answer. And in that process has done a lot of damage to a lot of people or mm-hmm. as there become, as there became other 
uh, answers that provided more context or understanding or empathy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, the church became very fractured. I feel like the next two big social issues we're going to be wrestling with in the church are genetics and genetic hacking, I mm-hmm. guess you might say, right? Yeah. And artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Which I think we can't have a black and white approach to. Right. Because these are infinitely more complex conversations than mm-hmm. the three we just journeyed through right. <laughs> that we didn't get right. Yeah. And we had a black and white approach to. And I just think it's... I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on that. Because obviously you're a scientist, but you're also a follower of Jesus. And mm-hmm. like, I want to see the church um, approach these conversations, genetics of which we're primarily talking about, but also artificial intelligence is going to be a part of that too. Those two aren't mutually exclusive because artificial intelligence could allow for very quick advances in the genetics community potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I want to see the church approach those two with a flexibility that allows them to understand the individual who decides they want blue eyes instead of green eyes and still can point them toward Jesus, right? Right. Um, yeah. And and maybe even more complex hacks that happen, you know, mm-hmm. but then also can understand the reality of like the person who... Like I think it's going to be easy for us to empathize with the person who can't cancer's cured. Their their yeah. cancer's cured. Right. And I think it's going to be harder for us to empathize with the person who wants blue eyes. Yeah. And I think we're going to make very black and white statements about that person. Yeah. That's going to alienate people from the church. And I'm I'm just I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that and mm-hmm. what you think the church should be doing right now to prepare for that world ahead. Well, I mean the fact of the matter is that, you know, whether we're talking about evolution or we're talking about genetics or machine learning, all of that falls under the umbrella of science. And science yes. ultimately is the biggest wild card that loves throwing new variables into the game. And and every time it does that, we have to stand back and recalculate our positions. But ultimately, it's the dilemmas that are arising and the questions that are being asked aren't changing a great deal. So... The same questions that we ask about the genetics of changing someone's hair color were asked when plastic surgery came about and promised that it could change, you know, your nose or the number of wrinkles on your face. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't even think about and, that. And you have to think back that the first person to put on eyeglasses might have been accused of playing God because now they have this superhuman vision that no one else in their family could ever accomplish. Mm. I mean, piece by piece, we have rebuilt so many elements of our lives. We put roofs over our heads and we don't have to rely on the beneficence of nature in order to stay alive through the winter. We We've managed to tame crops and build a stable source of food instead of having to hunt and gather. I mean, we've done so many things related to technology in ways that we don't even consider technology, like wearing a jacket, you know, or wearing eyeglasses. And yet the questions ultimately seem to be the same. It's just that the novelty makes us have renewed interest in it. So I think that the answer to the questions we're about to face are very similar to the questions we've already answered in the past. Generally speaking, anything that relieves human suffering allows us to love our neighbors and find some way of uh, appreciating the creation of God. That's usually a good thing. Um, The only question of when it's not is if there are some consequences that you're unique to that particular application. I'll get to that in a moment. I I don't think that any new technology should be, you know, instantly welcomed without any degree of skepticism, of course. But I don't think that 
however unpleasant the mechanism may seem or however it may tamper with the fabric of reality as we know it. I don't know if that's sufficient reason to dismiss any of these things. Yeah, because some people would say, well, well, Nate, eyeglasses are one thing, but you're manipulating the genetic code that God mm-hmm. designed. That's a different thing. Like, right. I, 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 yeah. I can understand that, that, yeah, that theory, it, but I do it, see your it connection, It hits you too. on a different emotional way that something we're more used to and more external doesn't seem to strike us as. But at the same time, those people probably don't have any issue with me giving someone dasatinib when they have one of those cancers that uses the mutated gene. Like it, it, yeah. People that, even though I'm using the same area of my brain with the same technology to solve the same problem that science has revealed to us as far as its mechanism, it just hits people in different ways that we're going in and fiddling with the genes as opposed to releasing a chemical that inhibits them. But I I think that once we get over that initial shock, over time these things become more mundane and more commonplace, that that startle factor will start to go away, I imagine. Mm. Um, just like it has with all these other things that have become a part of our lives. And that the more we see genetics as a practical, tangible part of the human body and not some mystical black box on which comic book superheroes are based off of, I think that some of the some of the the sanctity of those things may start to fade. People won't see it as somehow separate from anything else that we manipulate in the body. Okay. Um, and that can be a very long process. It may not happen in this generation even, but you know, as people become more accustomed to something, there's a little bit less reverence for it, I suppose. Okay. Um, so, you said something about saying you're going to double back to something about like... Uh, the, the, the consequences. The consequences yeah. of suspicion. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, for example, both um, eyeglasses and contact lenses treat the same problem. And if all we're saying is I'm using technology to relieve suffering by treating a disorder, well, that's one thing. But there is something that's fairly unique about each of those technologies that the other doesn't have. If I'm wearing contact lenses instead of wearing glasses, for example, I do have at least some risk of getting something like a corneal ulceration or a serious infection on my eye. Yeah. And so someone might say, is it really respectful to your body slash temple to expose yourself to the risk of something very damaging when you could get along just fine with perhaps a less pleasant or less cosmetically attractive option like like glasses. Hmm. Um, and, and that's the big thing about it is every technology has some degree of a trade involved in it. So getting LASIK, for example, means I will never have to worry about getting a corneal ulceration and infection from wearing contacts. And it means that if I'm hit in the face, I'll never have glass shatter into my eye. And because of those things, I feel like it offers some unique health advantages, but it does involve having your eyeballs zapped with lasers. And, you know, and there's an element of risk in that. There's an element of risk in that. So, you know, I guess part of the question hinges on how much of our bodies are we at license to trade or put at risk in pursuit of some of these advantages? So most people would agree that one of the tenets of good Christian life is respect for the body that one was given, not yeah. abusing it, not exploiting it for pleasure to its own harm, not doing anything that you know, is destructive to yourself, both for respect for God's creation and also as an example to others. So when it comes down to something like directly manipulating the fabric of life or the fabric of the body itself, you know, is there any risk that's too great to take where we would be disrespecting the body, you know, to a degree that is an affront to God, to put it bluntly? And some people have accused me of that for tattoos. Right. And earrings. Right. That it's disrespectful to the temple. Exactly. Although... They're relatively safe in our culture, at least, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people underestimate how much good even a cosmetic change can make. 
So if we have a baby, for example, who's born with what's called a port wine stain, which is a vascular malformation that creates a large lesion over their head. I mean, it's a, it's a birthmark of sorts. Sometimes it can be a sign of a serious disorder, but it's usually not. You know, is it is it wrong that insurance won't necessarily pay to have it removed because it's cosmetic? Because cosmetic issues can become serious health issues if that child is made a target for bullies throughout all of elementary and middle school. Sure. Like, you bullying, like depression is itself a life-threatening disease. Yeah. And a lot of people don't recognize it as such. And it can be environmental. And exactly. And so some things that influence your mood or your perception of yourself, even if it has nothing to do with what actually gives you value, those things have significant influence in determining your health and well-being. So I wouldn't dismiss something just because it's quote-unquote cosmetic. I mean, the fact that a person is able to modify their body with tattoos or piercings, it, it does a number of things. One, it allows them to tell the story of who they are and communicate some basic features of themselves to anyone who comes by. Like, there's a different message that your image sends than mine would send to some people. <laughs> sure, yeah. And I think that... People that, would think you're the pastor. <laughs> yeah. And, and, <laughs> now, if it was one of these as a pastor and a scientist, they'd be really confused. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the, so the fact of the matter is, like... Because of how you've created your image, you are in a position that can reach and influence people in a way that I cannot. Sure. And additionally, you may derive some satisfaction that I have chosen not to pursue based on how you've constructed that image. Sure. And that can influence everything from your day-to-day thought process, from your interactions with others. It makes you a unique individual. And with that comes unique opportunities and unique challenges. And so I wouldn't just say that you took a risk on your body for the sake of just, I don't know, having fun or doing something crazy. Like there's a lot of who you are comes from that. Mm -hmm. And cosmetics, even though we make them seem like a minor role in society, it's something that we all take for granted that every time we take a shower, put on deodorant or brush our teeth, we're doing cosmetic changes. I mean, obviously Mm. those are partly health-related issues as well. Yeah. But it's not wrong to say that something cosmetic can still have very real consequences for a person in their life. Yeah. And that's where I think this is going to blur so quickly, Mm -hmm. right? Is that, like, you just made a great argument for why cosmetic upgrades are important. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, like, I don't know. I just see eventually the church answering this because I love how you put it all under the umbrella of science. The church yeah. has not done well historically with science advancements. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that is, hey, hold on, maybe the Earth isn't the center of our, you know, mm-hmm. um, solar system, <laughs> or hey, uh, maybe the Earth isn't flat. Yeah. <laughs> Although that's making a comeback, which oh, is interesting. That's <laughs> that, yeah. But um, but I mean, like, <sighs> even on those two topics, which <laughs> seem so obvious to us today. The church initially bulked, you know, put pushed back against that, right? Mm-hmm. And we have the we have the records that show that the church struggled with those advancements, and the church struggles with advancements in our understanding of the origins of our, you know, of humanity in evolutionary terms, and even animal life and like how that goes about, and yeah. The, the age of the earth and all of these different things, all these different, you know, things that we talked about last time mm-hmm. with evolution. And I just feel like we're going to be behind the eight ball on this conversation too, which is like, I'm trying to figure out how to get handles on it now so that as, cause it's all, and what's, it's all predicated on fear, yeah. right? It's all predicated on fear, which I think is actually the more theological, like 
perspective that I want to go toward is like, we're not supposed to be afraid, guys. Like, like there's this, you know, reality of fear that exists here. Yeah. That, Although I think it's reasonable to say that we're called to be more cautious sure. than some people would be, especially if we recognize the value in some of the gifts and creations we've been given. Like, we also are responsible for being good stewards of those things. Exactly. And if yeah. you don't believe there's anything valuable about the human body or about the genetic code, then there's no reason not to screw around with it. But we at least have to give pause and say, like, are we... Are we acting in the way that we are meant to with these things in service of the God who gave it to us? And are we fulfilling our duties as created beings who are charged with going out and fulfilling the greatest commandments that we discussed earlier? Is that, is that something we're doing or are we doing this for ourselves? And the fact that we do take the moment to pause and reflect on those things is one thing that gives the church a unique advantage yeah. that you may not have outside of that perspective. So I wouldn't be too quick to dismiss that, but certainly it can run wild and drive people to irrational fears, yes. Well, and I think it's just going to be one more way to divide theists and atheists. And what yeah. I mean, what I mean, does that make sense? And yep. to like push us further into our camps. Yeah. That's, I guess, my concern is that theists are going to be like, well, we have the moral high ground because we care about the genetic code because it was created by God. And you don't. You just think it's... Mm-hmm. A and, ball of tissue. Right. Like, and the atheists will say, say, like, they're trying to let that kid die of cancer because they won't let us research stem cells, for example. Yeah. Or, you know, in this case, you know, genetic hacking or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, this will be another way that they try and persuade the world that we're holding back progress or perhaps inflicting more suffering than we claim to be preventing. Yeah. And, and that's true in some cases. There are some things throughout history where, in an effort to try and preserve creation, we have harmed it. Yeah. By resisting some of this information. That's so interesting. So unique. So like, it, it's it's history repeated, yeah. I feel like, right? Yeah. Two camps pushed further into their side. I'm just trying to think through as a faith leader, like, how we don't get to that point. But yeah. I don't know that there's a silver bullet there either. Just like there's no silver bullet right. in genetic hacking for how to find this or that. I don't know that there's yeah. a silver bullet, but I do think... In openness and awareness. And, and the truth is, is like, I don't hear a whole lot of faith, people in the faith community talking about this problem or mm-hmm. not that it's a problem, but this re, this new technology that's coming about, uh, whether it is artificial intelligence or whether it is um, genetic hacking and, and the reality that like, we're going to have to have an answer for this pretty soon. Yeah. Like this is coming. Yeah. Like you can, you can push it off, but like, even just for talking to you, I did some research. Like, and by research, I mean like Googled some things and looked. <laughs> so like very, very, very low level research. But like the the data out there and the, the stuff that's... Like I heard about something in Ukraine where there was a baby born with three different DNA, uh, three different parent contributors or something like that. Like So like uh, a test tube type situation or I don't I don't even know in vitro I think was was it but like it, it had I'll have to send you this stuff yeah. it was something from from Ukraine they had um that uh that there were three three different parents in <laughs> essence to this child which is like some breakthrough thing or whatever I guess NPR did a whole thing on it I don't know whatever but the point being we're going to be hearing more articles like that coming out and if we're just waiting to react without knowing like some of the real world problems that this stuff's solving, does that, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Cause I think we're going to hear the most fantastical things first, Yeah. but we're not going to hear what you're doing and what other doctors are doing 
and what people in labs are doing to alleviate suffering with this technology. And I just think we need that too. We need to know that yeah. too before we form our opinion from a news article that was probably slanted yeah. to, <laughs> to like make us react a particular way is what I right. guess I'm saying. Does right. that make sense? Like it with shock and all, oh my gosh, how oh, is that yes. possible? So, <laughs> so what would you want people, as we close this out, what would you want people to consider as they think about genetics and as they think about, I mean, I'm, I'm 34 years old. I hope to still have quite a bit of my life ahead of me. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to see quite a bit of advancement in mm-hmm. this in my lifetime. If I, you know, live a decent life. Um, what should I or other people who are, you know, hoping to live for the next 20, 30, 40 years gonna potentially see or need, need to be considering? I would say, first and foremost, just recognize that a lot of the first gut reaction is probably going to be at least a little bit illogical at its core, that a lot of times we're very quick to jump to conclusions based on how something makes us feel than what it actually does. And when we talk about, you know, hacking the genetic code, you know, the very essence of life and the fabric of human existence it tends to hit people a little bit differently than putting on a pair of glasses. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is similar in both of those things. I would caution people to avoid trying to ascribe any particular degree of, you know, sanctity or, you know, some, some sacred level of protection to any one part of the created existence because I don't think that the DNA in our bodies is any way more sacred or more God-directed than the individual hairs on our head. I don't Mm -hmm. think that there's anything particularly magical or mysterious about this, except that it's difficult for people to understand, but that there's nothing that's really off limits in that regard, just because it seems like it's a little bit more of a black box than something else that we're more used to seeing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, God doesn't split the world up into supernatural and natural things. Everything comes from God. It's all his handiwork. Mm -hmm. And that seems like an arbitrary distinction to me. So, you know, inanimate objects and living things both came from the same God. Certainly we have some unique position as image bearers, as do all living things. But ultimately, the way that we're accustomed to interacting with these things shouldn't be so different if ultimately we're focusing not on the created thing, but we're focusing on God and the mission that he's given us Mm -hmm. to pursue. So, I mean, much as how people were concerned about early studies of anatomy because you were cutting open a body, you know, something sacred. Yeah. I feel like people would also be too quick to recoil at the idea of looking into the DNA because that also seems to be somehow different than any other way of exploring creation. Hmm. Um, We didn't really talk about that much, but that's another example of where there has been some pushback from the church, early studies of anatomy. I mean, yeah, it was, when you said that, I was like, whoa, I didn't even think about that, but that makes sense. I can yeah. totally see how that would be. Um, I mean, now that being said, there are, there are some institutions of academia that perpetuate the idea that, you know, the early church forbade the study of anatomy. That's not completely true, at least not categorically so. But certainly it was discouraged to, you know, dig up dead bodies and cut them open. Yeah. Um, the ancient Egyptians did it most famously. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci did it famously, but... You know, there, there aren't a whole lot of stories throughout history of, you know, major advancements coming from the dissection of human bodies because for the longest time it was just un- unspeakable in most communities. Um, we probably know what we know about the body from the last maybe 400 years or so of study. But, I mean, even, even the physician Galen in Greece didn't know how many lobes the liver had. 
Um, even the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci were, were wildly inaccurate based on, you know, perhaps some imagination involved, but also limitations in their knowledge of what was physically inside a body that you cut open. Hmm. Um, but nowadays, you know, we do autopsies, not just regularly, but sometimes by legal mandate. You know, the law can say that a, a mother's child needs an autopsy, even if she disagrees. If someone's the, you know, dead by a victim of a crime, for example, yeah. or if there's certain criteria that you meet depending on the state, like the, the government can order that your body be dug up and autopsied. And yeah. the fact that we seem pretty chill about that is perhaps how we'll feel when it comes to things like genetic exploration and modification someday. It's just something we do now and then. And maybe it doesn't seem very pleasant. Maybe there's something distasteful about it, but it's just accepted as part of society. I don't know. The exploration. I love that word. It's like the pioneering continues mm -hmm. into the great unknown. And hopefully we can learn from our mistakes. Although I do think, like you said, caution is, is good. It's not bad to be cautious. Yeah. I think it's just good to know why you're being cautious. Are you being cautious because you're being illogical? Or are you being logically cautious, I guess? like, And right. I, maybe there's a thin line there. But I do think if we hold this very dogmatically... We're going yeah. to be in an interesting position in the next 20 to 30 years as, as the faith community, as the church, with a topic that's going to be so wide-reaching um, because health is at the forefront of so many of our conversations, political, mm -hmm. healthcare, like, you know what I mean? Uh, so many different ways that this is central to our conversation, and certainly if there's ways that we could live longer, we're going to want to explore this because... Yeah. At the core of, you know, going back to evolution, we want to survive longer. Like we want to live longer, right? Mm -hmm. We want to try to find a way to to survive. Yeah. And this could potentially provide that. Yeah. I mean, that's... And so many things we've done have accomplished that goal in a lot of ways, whether it's improvements in public health and sanitation, whether it's advances in medicine. I mean, there's a reason that the human lifespan has doubled in the last century, more or less. And and no one typically raises an eyebrow much at that, for the most part. Do you think it could double again in the next century? <laughs> it certainly could. Yeah. It certainly could. I mean, especially as we learn more about, you know, the mechanisms of aging and ways to reverse or even slow down that process. I mean, it's... Which genetics could be a part of. Oh, of course it is, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we know specifically things like telomeres are related. So telomeres are sections of DNA that gradually shorten every time the cell divides. And when they shorten too much, the cell can't split anymore. It's called the Hayflick limit. And most cells reach it after they've divided maybe 50 times or so. Hmm. And it's thought that one of the reasons why humans age is because those segments of DNA eventually get used up. Our cells can't divide anymore. We can't heal from injury or illness. We can't replenish, you know, senescent dying off cells. And eventually things just sort of shut down. And there's a lot of research in how to make the telomeres replenish um, we know that tumor cells have found a way to do it. Uh, tumor cells can divide infinitely. They never die. Even after they go past the Hayflick limit, they just breeze right through, it seems. So, I mean, this isn't something that's inaccessible. It's, it, it happens. So if we could find out how it's happening in that particular tumor cell. Could we give that ability to normal cells? Could we give that ability to normal cells? Of course. That's a very tempting explanation that could be done. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's very possible in the next hundred years we may double our lifespan again, especially if we keep going at this rate. Man alive. Well, we're going to end it there. So much conversation and uh, so much good stuff. Thank you so much, Nate, for, uh, for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your experience. 
Uh, I know that for me, science is an area where I know very little (laughs) and having every conversation I have with you, whether we're on a podcast or just talking, like I always walk away feeling like I learned a ton that I didn't (laughs) know. Um, and this has been very helpful. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Another episode down. I want to thank Nathan McConkie for being with me again and sharing his amazing science knowledge with all of us. So great. It was great to have you with me today on Beyond Boundaries. If you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode or check out my Palestine Israel trip, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, and questions, or you can reach out via Instagram. I'm at Pastor Justin Douglas. Please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. It really does make a difference. Uh, all of your reviews, all of your ratings, they, they, they make a huge difference as other people are considering listening to an episode and they see that. And it also makes the visibility more for the episode and, and for the podcast as a whole. So please, if you like this, it would mean so much for me if you would share it on your pages, but also if you would go and give it a rating and give it a review. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas and championing belonging.